It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, but it don't need something to your own head. Beat it up and I've seen that no seats. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom <laughs> and bloom <laughs> hey friends and neighbors welcome to the doom and bloom survival medicine hour a patriotic paragon of piety in a pernicious world <laughs> i'm joe alton md also known as dr bones of doomandbloom.net where you'll find over 900 closing in on a thousand wow posts videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster this is the lovely Nurse Amy. Also, my real name is Amy Alton. I am an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And we are the prodigious pair Mm -hmm. that tries to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. We are the beauty and the beast. (laughs) We are the queen and the codger. We are the... uh, Whatever. We're not the watchers on the wall. We're not the watchers on the We are the watchers on the wall. <laughs> I'm oh. so sad that that's going to end in two seasons. <laughs> oh, Game of Game Thrones. Of Thrones. Yes, oh. big fan here. I hate watching each one of them because I know it's just one step closer to never being able to watch them again. Unless I watch repeats. <laughs> you know how I was with that Lost? I was really sad to get to the last episode, but I wanted to know all the mysteries. Right. And it turned out it was terrible. Anyone who hasn't watched Lost, I won't reveal the secret. But it was a horrible ending. Just awful. They could have been more imaginative. Well, luckily for us, anyway, in a survival hopefully. setting, there won't be television. So you won't have to worry <laughs> hey, about that ever again if something happens. still good. <laughs> there you go. All right. That's right. And, that, and, and, well, you should. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a gargantuan guppy, <laughs> our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when a disaster occurs and you're the highest asset left to your family, what do you do? 
Well, you show the world that you've got more sense than the good Lord gave a clam. <laughs> That's what, by learning what to do for injuries and illnesses. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge you're accumulating. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They help you handle medical issues in tough times, and they're designed by yours truly. And MD, a medical, real medical doctor, and hers truly a real advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, costs with anyone else's stuff. Try to put one of these together on your own and see how much it costs. Or just ask anyone who's ever bought one of our kits, and you'll agree our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, Amy, you put together a kit yes. for some of our mobile listeners recently, especially those who ride the Iron Horse. Tell us just a little bit about it. You don't have to go through every item in it. Well, it's nice and compact. Um, you get a pressure dressing. You get sea locks, which is super important. The gauze is in there, so you can stuff that into wounds. Right, blood clotting gauze. You have a tourniquet. Yep. The uh, SWAT T tourniquet, which is actually very versatile. I like that one the best because whether it's you who gets injured as an adult or perhaps you have a, a child or you come across a child that's been injured or a real thin Even an adult, animal on the road. Animal, a pet. Maybe your dog was riding in your on your motorcycle and unfortunately fell off for some reason. You have the ability to take care of, of smaller human beings and pets versus just um, adults normal-sized people. And your kit is very small, too. I mean, it's very compact. It's very compact. It's only about seven or eight inches high. It's about four inches wide and about only like two inches thick. So I have put a lot of stuff in there. Right. You but can it's handle... nice and handy. It weighs hardly anything whatsoever. It'll fit in a motorcycle seat. It'll fit in a backpack you might be uh, wearing and also, of course, any of those handy travel cases that people attach to their motorcycles or even a bicycle. Right. Uh, Always a good idea great. to have. And so if you guys ride a motorcycle or have any kind of, even a bicycle they would fit on. So you have I, an other option. I geared it towards uh, orthopedic and trauma and then just like little cuts and scrapes. So, of course, you get your Band-Aids and your antiseptics, some smaller gauze. Yeah, yeah, and then you get you know, some other stuff for orthopedic. As much as I could put in a kit is right. how is what I do. <laughs> you stuff things pretty I, incredible. I don't know how you fit all that stuff I know. Oh, in oh, those bags. I have to tell you one little story mentioning that I have an order for 13 of the combat, compact kits, which are sort of a general first aid with, with some trauma in it. Yeah, good for the trail. And so. it's a municipality, and... The lady called me. She says they had their joint commission meeting, and they got my kit, and they laid it all out. And uh, she wanted to ask what the honey was, so I had to tell her. But she says, Amy, I couldn't get it all back in the kit. <laughs> I said, well, that's because I'm a professional packer, and I put more stuff than humanly should be able to be in that size kit. <laughs> But she ordered 13 more of them. Right. Well, the good thing is that you could actually maybe city. make a, a, a second <laughs> little kid out of the stuff that's in your first I one. I know. That I is know. Isn't amazing. That funny? All right. Well, 
That's enough of that. What's the stuff, Powder Puff? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so why not connect with us? It is so easy. Here's the lovely Nurse Amy. She'll tell you how. I will, if I remember. Let's say we have an email. You can email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. If you guys have trouble with that one, try drbonesclass at aol.com. I'm I'm having some people tell me they're trying to email us, and for some reason um, we're not getting them. So drbonesclass would also be a fine email to send to us. Let's see. We have a Facebook group. It's Survival Medicine. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. That's a great group if you want to yeah, interact with... more than 5,000 people there. Yep, if you want to interact with other people who are very interested in survival medicine, that's a great place to show up. Uh, we have a couple of pages. I put a lot of information on Doom and Bloom, which is a Facebook page, and also uh, Doctor, spelled out, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show is another page. But Doom and Bloom is probably... You know, you're central, mm-hmm. and then if you want to interact with other people, the Survival Medicine Facebook group. Twitter, mm-hmm. at Purple Show. We're being very good. Give ourselves a round of applause for actually putting tweets up. Uh, we're paying at a, attention. At a good rate. Yep. And we've had so much going on. Lots we've of We've been putting up a lot yeah. of videos, a lot of, um, we have a lot of new classes, mm-hmm. a lot of articles, a lot of things going Podcasts, on. Podcasts, Oh, deal. my goodness. Well, we so, have a lot of content. I've been keeping up with Twitter. So if you want to know what's happening. Also, folks, I don't think people really realize this, but there's something called an RSS feed. So if you really want to see each and everything immediately when it's put up on the website, there's a little tiny subscribe for RSS feed just under the tent picture. It's in the on smaller the bit, yep, the on the home page of the website, and it's just underneath the picture. So you can do that. Well, sounds great. So let's see. We covered Twitter. We have some Pinterest, Survival Medicine. We have Doom and Bloom. Right. Those are our Pinterest. That's common, right. We hardly ever ones. mention that, but we have put I everything ha- up on there, too. Yeah. So just a we lot. Like four of those. Just a lot of stuff. Hey, you know, last time we were talking about what to do if you're lost at sea. And I think we ended it up talking about sharks. And uh, every ocean in the world, obviously, has sharks, so even though only about 20 or so species are known to attack humans. Uh, that's still a lot of species, honestly, between mm-hmm. you and me. I, I, don't feel, I don't feel somehow, don't feel reassured by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's part of the reason why we're not down in Key Largo right now with your brother on a boat. I know, he wanted us to... <laughs> Jump in the Hit water. Hit the drink, and there are a lot of sharks down Last there. Last time we that. were there, there were like six-foot waves mm-hmm. chopping all over the place. That was harrowing. Yeah, that's mostly it. Most of the time, sharks don't attack humans, obviously, but they are attracted to blood in the water, urine, even urine or feces in the water, and, and certainly any irregular and thrashing movements. So if you're in the water with a bunch of other swimmers, and let's say a boat has capsized and you're one of the survivors... What you should do to ordinarily to stay warm is to huddle together and facing each other. However, if you're in the water with sharks, you probably should huddle together, form a circle, but facing outward so you can better defend yourselves and see when a shark might be coming. And, of course, if a shark approaches, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to slap the water with uh, your cupped hands Mm -hmm. or, or shout underwater. Sometimes that deters it, but... 
Otherwise, if you know if you can't avoid contact with this thing, try to kick it, punch it, do anything you can. The sensitive areas are the snout, eyes, and gills. So it's very interesting that you mentioned um, slapping the water. So I know that these things almost have like a radar when they're approaching prey. Now they have amazing smell, which is why mm-hmm. you know they can smell a I don't know a drop of blood, many many. like a mile I've heard yes away absolutely but so it's interesting that and then once they've honed in on it they sense movement so if you cup your hands and you start making a lot of splashing or almost like sound waves into the water it may disorient them and maybe knock them off their course towards yes. you. You know, on their, sense. on their snout, if they if you can call that a snout, mm-hmm. uh, basically they have a sensory organs that are called ampullae of Lorenzini. And these things well, are very, really very, very sensitive. And that's how they use, that's how they, what they use to sort of figure out what's going on. They bump into you right. as an investigor, investigatory thing. Mm-hmm. And, it maybe the hitting the water with your hands or making a loud noise, maybe that somehow does something. Disorience, right, right. Or does that something. makes sense. Now, unfortunately, playing dead does not discourage a shark if it decides it wants to be aggressive. An aggressive shark isn't going to just bump into you. It'll probably take a, a, what they call an investigatory bite. We'd love to call it a nibble, yeah, but it's, but it's never not a nibble. It's never a nibble. Never a nibble. That's true. I mean, just one of these bites could mean the end of you in oh, open the, water, especially. The teeth are oh, yeah. just... The scariest thing. Oh, they are. Even just the ones that you see at the shell shops. That when I say shell, I said seashell shops. That, that by we the have seashore, in, the, yeah. in Florida. Seashells by <laughs> the seashore. That are common here, probably not common elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But they have the jaws of sharks sometimes. Right. And the teeth are hideous. Oh yeah, they're scary. Oh my goodness. And the, and not just the teeth. The skin of a shark is extremely abrasive. Each scale has little projections, almost like teeth. They're called dermal denticles. And they often bump into potential prey before they attack. Before they decide to do a bite, they'll they'll just bump up against you or rub up against you. And for that reason, it's always a good idea to keep your clothing on if you do go into the water, including your shoes, because mm-hmm. blood from skin that's abraded by contact with with shark skin, you know, would would excite them, get them more interested in finding out more about you by biting you. Oh goodness! Of course, a much better way to survive if you're stranded in the ocean, of course, is not being physically in the ocean, is to be in a life raft. In a raft, you can use your skills to survive longer and, of course, have a better chance of rescue. You'll be able to, to live for a longer period of time without getting hypothermic and all that if you're in a raft. Now, most larger vessels do have a life raft that you can deploy before it sinks, so it, make sure you do that. If you find yourself in a life raft abandoning a sinking ship, the first thing you need to do is get away from the ship itself, especially if the ship is of any significant size. If you've seen the movie Titanic, you probably remember the sinking ship suck down all sorts of people in life jackets and all sorts of other debris with it as it went down. So you'll want to paddle away from the wreck in case, uh, especially in case a fire starts, because burning oil on the water and the toxic smoke it creates spreads downwind. So just always make sure you try to get as far away as you can and try to figure out where the wind is and not go directly downwind, especially if it's a large boat. Now, once the ship has gone into the deep, Fire is no longer a risk, obviously. So 
what you need to do is check the water for anything that could possibly be useful, anything that wasn't bolted down to the ship, may rise to the surface, could be uh, snatched up and utilized by survivors. Many modern life rafts have survival kits and paddles that are built into them. Others have these boxes, and they're almost always floating, floatable boxes, where they have their <laughs> medical kits and maybe food, things like that. Now, of course, unless life land is in sight, it's pretty wise to stay as close to the last known position of the ship as possible because that's where all the rescue efforts are going to begin, right? So the closer you are to where the ship sank, the more likely you are going to be found. And this is especially useful if you sink in widely traveled areas, shipping lanes, things like that. The key is to be where other boats are going to be traveling so that you might be able to be found. Now, if you're in a remote part of the ocean for some reason, the direction that birds fly may help you determine where the nearest land is. Seabirds will fly away from land in the early morning. And so where they're, the direction they're coming from is probably where land is. And, and in the evening, they'll fly back towards land. And so that gives you an idea. Also, as uh, water becomes more shallow and waves decrease in size, that's sort of another key that you're heading close to um, land. You can tell water that's becoming more shallow usually appears a little bit lighter. Now, the direction of the wind may help you find land, too. Wind usually blows towards land in the day and away at night. Dry land absorbs heat from the sun faster than water does. So, therefore, you get this warm air over land, and that rises, and cool air over the water rushes in to replace it because it wants to be warmed up, I guess. At night, water cools more slowly than land does. And so the warmer air over the water rises and the cool air from the land rushes away in towards the water. So that gives you an idea of what's going on by the direction of the wind. Now, if you're approaching land, it's very important to try to find the sandiest appearing stretches of beach. Remember, rocks and coral below the surface can easily tear the bottom of your rash, raft cause injury if you get out of the raft, for example. Lots of people get injured. I remember in the Bahamas when we were there, a lot of this, this rock uh, was really sort of jagged. I mean, oh, it's really terrible. Easy to cut yourself on the <clears throat> rock. I remember doing a little damage to my feet as and I was walking on just rock that was attached to, I mean, just right coral. on the shore. It's, it's old coral, and it's it sharp as anything. Right, exactly. So, this is something that's important. Um, in rip currents, you want to paddle sideways, and, and slowly but surely, you should make progress to the shore. Now, if you're not close to land, make sure you do not exert yourself. You need to protect your body from the sun, from the elements, conserve your resources, limit your consumption. Many modern rafts come with a canopy. That's awesome. But if you're in an open raft, you're going to want to erect some kind of shelter from the elements using pretty much anything you can, a tarp, part of a sail, some spare clothing. If it's hot, you can dampen your clothing with seawater to cool off, although eventually it's going to cause some skin irritation. Uh, if it's cold, you want to put on as much clothing on as you can, and usually anything that can serve as a windbreak will help protect you. Now, there are commercially made anti-exposure suits. They are made especially for this purpose. Some of them are built into uh, the bigger life rafts, uh, and this is great if you have it, but most of the time if you're in a small raft, that's not going to be the case. Uh, the floor of your raft, this is important, 
will be colder than the walls, so don't sleep lying down if you're in cold weather. Now, if it's hot, however, the floor might help keep you cool so because of its contact with water, especially if you have some cover. So that's the bottom line, I think, is that you want to keep the inside of the raft as dry as it possibly can be. Uh, canopies uh, can double as a rain catch, so if you have anything that could serve as a canopy and, and it's raining, you could use that to help collect water. That water is going to be essentially your biggest struggle, right? You can't live very long without it. The first day in the raft, I would say, if you have water on you as a as a supply at a canteen or some water, some kind of water bottle, I would probably not drink much water at all the first day in the raft. You can you can certainly live with for a day without water, but you have to at the very least figure out some kind of water rationing system, and you got to stick to it. Yeah, that sounds tough. Right. When now, you're dying, literally dying of thirst, can you imagine? Right. It, in, to stay in decent shape, I mean, not to just survive. You don't, You can use less than this to survive, but to stay in decent shape, a liter a day would be great, but it's possible to survive on as little as two or five ounces a day. Although over cor the course of time, you'll get steadily weaker and weaker. Regardless of what you've read, you cannot drink seawater. You cannot drink seawater. It dehydrates you due to the large amount of salt that it contains, but you can get condensation from seawater if you have a few supplies. And this is what you would need. You would need a pot, a smaller pot, some plastic wrap or sheeting, and one or two weights of some sort. This is what you do. You fill the larger pot with seawater, then you put the smaller pot in the middle of the larger pot. You cover the whole thing with plastic and then put a weight over the center of the smaller part, pot. And what happens is, is the water inside under the sheeting or the, the plastic will condense. And what happens is it, it will condense on the inside of the covering of the plastic sheet or whatever you're using for that. And because of the weight that you put on top of that, it'll cause it to drip into the smaller pot, which you can drink from. And that water is okay to drink. And that contraption altogether is called a solar still. Now, save whatever, save whatever food you have for at least the first day or two. You can certainly go a long time without food, so ration it out slowly so it'll last. If you've seen Naked and Afraid, you know, these people go without eating, theoretically. For quite yeah. a period of time, you never oh, know. I'm sure they sneak sneaky, a sandwich yeah, here and there. Yeah, we've heard some yeah. some sly stuff goes on there. <laughs> They're not as thirsty and hungry as they appear. And I'll tell you what, they exaggerate that weight loss. Just looking at those pictures, they showed some guy who barely looked like he lost anything, and they said 28 pounds. Well, now some of them look emaciated later. That's but true. Some of them don't. Every once in a while, there's there's somebody who truly looks like they're on the verge of utter starvation, but I don't think they're starving as much as they claim to be. <laughs> I think you're not right. Not as much. They I... are hungry, but not as much. Well, I think you're right. <laughs> you might be able to catch curious fish or sea turtles, seabirds, uh, which you just have to eat raw, I guess. Uh, they're inedible, inedible parts, and those inedible parts uh, would be awesome for bait, if you can. If you, uh, According to one guy... Uh, here says he caught fish by wriggling dirty clothes in the waters and scooping them up with a fishing net. So he actually had a fishing net 
And so that's sort of interesting. Um, apparently it worked for him, so good. Uh, flashlights at night are useful. Uh, they might attract some fish. Uh, be aware that too much protein can cause, uh, from just from eating fish, and that's it, may cause you to use your body's water to digest it. Oh, by the way, I've t been told that fish eyes contain fluid that you can ingest safely. So Interesting. Pop the eye oh, out of a fish. You can just get a little fluids from that. Okay, well, you know what? Any port in the storm. There you go. Right. Yes, any port <laughs> in the storm. Now, can you eat seaweed? That's a good question. The often, answer is often yes. Many seaweeds are part of, a coast, of the diet of coastal inhabitants all the way around the world. Um, green, brown, or red seaweeds can be washed and are eaten Are you kidding? Raw Those things dried. are filled with minerals yes. and vitamins. Or something. So... <laughs> People it, eat those all the time. Right. Well, you, know, you should only eat the leafy parts, the parts that are round and filled with gas. That's sort of like in kelp. You remember the kelp that we saw yes, on the West Coast? Giant. It had bubbles or it had like gas bubbles in the actual stems. So well, that's don't why. The gas right. That's that's why it. <laughs> that makes sense. That's why I guess it. it oh, they sort harvest. Of floated. On they the, harvest those on the water and yeah. dry them, and people people buy seaweed all the time. Absolutely. Now, some seaweeds, who knows if every single one is okay. You can touch the seaweed to your lips and wait a few hours, see if there's an ill effect. You have to be aware that seaweed, according to people who, who've eaten it, tends to have a laxative effect. It takes some getting used to. I'll bet it does. Now, another useful item for the raft, some sort of signaling device, a hand mirror that can reflect the sun or be seen from a passing boat or plane. You know, that would be a, a good thing to increase your chances of survival. Some newer rafts do come with a beacon, so that would be a, well, God, that would be awesome if you happen to have that. Last week we talked about what to do if you were in the water, and so check out last week's podcast and you, you'll see my strategies if you wind up in the water with just a life jacket or just by yourself. Good stuff to know, whether it's a lake or an ocean. Absolutely. So we have also some issues with the state of the world oh, today. North gosh. Korea is rattling the saber and, of course, you know. So annoying. Getting... I, I, I'm going to reiterate this. Why can't we all just get along? I mean, really. <sighs> it is, it's hard to believe oh, that. Can't we find a planet to put people like the North Korean leader on? Well. Just give. I don't care. I, I'm not saying eliminate him. Don't. I mean, I'm not like into death or something, but just give him his own space and let all the violent, crazy people go live there and let them all just fight and, and figure out what they want to do and leave the rest of us alone. Gosh, I know. people just want to go to work, afford to pay their mortgage and their food bill and their car and send their kids to college and maybe have some retirement money. I mean, most people don't want that many things in life. We just want basics, you know, maybe some creature comforts. Certainly don't want to rule the world. You know what he called the United States today? What? He said, we're just a lump and he's going to make us into jelly. Mm. <laughs> so I say we should need a hashtag. Yeah. 
we love jelly. Yeah. And everyone should take a picture of them eating like peanut butter and jelly, jelly on toast, <laughs> holding up your favorite jelly. A viral phenomenon. Making, Is making that what you're... jelly. Yeah, I think we should do a hashtag, we love jelly. <laughs> we love jelly. We love jelly. All right, sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and, and who said this? The... Kim Jong-un? Yes. Oh, my God. What a nut. All right. Well, anyhow. I have other words for him, but you can call him by his name if you want. All right. Well, I don't don't get too political. We don't get too political on this show. I'm just saying he's a kookula burden. Mm -hmm. I'm sure everyone out there agrees. I mean it. Who wouldn't? (laughs) Well, I mean, given the situation, many would consider a nuke. I mean, I'll tell you what. Ordinarily, and so I don't want you to think this is a crazy old show, you know, we, like many, consider a nuclear attack to be sort of an outlandish scenario to which only conspiracy theorists usually we subscribe. Hope, we hope. We, we don't expect anything to happen on a typical basis. We don't live in fear of it happening, but this guy is rattling the his, saber. The saber, and he's pointing it towards us. And yep. there are people on the West Coast. That are very fearful. I've had people writing to us. They're scared. Someone just ordered a bunch of thyroid safe on my store. Yeah, for radiation sickness. Just a few minutes ago, literally while you've been talking. Right, we'll be we'll be talking about what that is in just a, a few minutes. Unfortunately, the threat of a nuclear incident, whether it's an accidental or purposeful thing, does exist. Maybe more than in recent years, due to all this North Korean. Peninsula, the Korean Peninsula stuff. That atomic weapons. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yes, they can decimate a population from thermal blast, kinetic energy, but also cause illness and death due to exposure from radiation. Now, populated areas have experienced nuclear detonations only twice, and that was in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan in 1945, ending World War II. But We've had other things, nuclear reactor meltdowns and other events have occurred from time to time. Chernobyl in 1986, Fukushima in 2011, uh, Three Mile Island, a number of different situations where uh, nuclear reactors have gone kerblooey. Now, an atomic explosion, though, is different. Radiation is just one of the possible causes of casualties. Heat effects, all this kinetic energy damage near the blast, that's going to cause many deaths and injuries close to ground zero. Radiation that's released into the atmosphere, however, that can have devastating effects far from where the bomb hit. Now, a nuclear event produces something called fallout, and fallout is the particular matter that is thrown into the air by the explosion. It can travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles on the prevailing winds, and this stuff sort of falls out of the atmosphere as, I guess, a kind of dust coating fields and livestock and even people with radioactive material. Now, the higher that the fallout goes into the atmosphere, the farther it's going to travel downwind. And this material contains elements that are hazardous if they're inhaled or ingested, like radioiodine, cesium, strontium, tritium, all sorts of different things. Now, even worse, fallout is absorbed by the animals and plants that make up our food supply. You might be able to hide from the fallout in your shelter, but you're not going to be able to take your cow in there, most likely, or... Uh, you know, 500 chickens. So that is a big issue. And small, even in small amounts, fallout and radiation from that is hazardous to your health long term. And in large enough amounts, it can rapidly become life-threatening. 
Now, a nuclear power plant meltdown is usually less damaging than a nuclear blast, of course. Uh, the radioactive material never makes it up as high in, in the sky as a mushroom cloud from an <clears throat> atomic bomb. The worst effects in those circumstances are going to be felt by those in the area of the nuclear reactors. There are lighter particles, however, like radioactive iodine. Those are the ones that are going to travel the farthest. They're the main concern for those people that are far from the actual explosion or meltdown. So in Fukushima, when Fukushima blew in 2011, the West Coast was concerned. Indeed, some particles of radioactive iodine were able to be found on our, si our side of the Pacific Ocean, but that was just radioactive iodine. The heavier uh, cesium and strontium, the other elements, didn't really make it in much quantity over to our neck of the woods. So that's so radioiodine is a main concern for those that are far from the actual explosion or, or meltdown. Now, the level of exposure depends on the distance that radioactive particles have to travel from the meltdown and the time that it takes the radiation to arrive to your area. The medical effects of exposure are called radiation sickness, or sometimes people call it acute radiation syndrome. A certain amount of radiation exposure is actually tolerable over time. You actually produce a little bit of radiation. The Earth produces radiation from the, and even the atmosphere. You have radon, a uh, radioactive gas that's in the atmosphere in trace amounts. But in general, your goal is to shelter your group as much as you possibly can. Now, to accomplish this, you have to, well, let's, well, you know what, let's clarify what the different ways of measuring quantities of radiation are. Scientists use terms such as RADs, REMs, Sieverts, Becquerels, <laughs> Curies, there's all sorts of different things I, to I describe radiation how did, amounts. How did those get so many different names? Is this just different languages or well, over the course of time? A number of these are actually the names of the people who first work with radiation, for example. Well, that makes sense. So let, let's talk a little bit about it. And, and they mean different things. It's not They're not exactly the same thing. Some measure the amount of radiation that's being given off by a source. Mm -hmm. Another measures the total amount of radiation actually absorbed by a human or an animal. And another one talks about the chance that a living being would suffer health damage from exposure. So... Curies and Becquerels, for example. Is that for are, Madame Curie? Yes, they're named after scientists uh -huh. who were the first to work with. I say Curie, and, but isn't it Curry? Curie, no. Curie, it Curie. is the cure. Curie, Curie. Curie, oh. Yeah. yeah. And let's see. So, well, these uh, these people were scientists who were the first first to work with radiation, and by the way, and, die and died from radiation I know. exposure. I remember that in school. Oof. So Becquerels and Curies describe the amount of radiation that, say, a, a hunk of uranium would give off to the environment. Mm -hmm. Now, RADS, which uh, is um, radiant accumulated dose, I think is what, it's, uh, what it uh, stands for. I have to check that to see if that's right. I shall check that while the, you speak. Good. Uh, <laughs> and RADS are the amount of the radiation in the environment that's actually absorbed. And that's really, I think, very important. And REMS and sieverts are the measurements of the risk of health damage from the radiation that's absorbed. And this is all confusing, uh, confusing. So for our purposes, let's use RADs. Uh, and absorbed oh, I see. Radi radiation dose. Radiation absorbed dose, RAD. And so good. That measures the amount of radiation energy that's transferred to some mass of material like a human. 
Now, an acute radiation dose, that's one that's received over a very short period of time, that's the most likely to cause damage. And I have a list of the effects on humans corresponding to the amount of radiation absorbed. By the way, you absorb about 0.6 rads of radiation per year from natural or household sources. And these are the, so let's talk about the effects of uh, different degrees of acute radiation exposure on humans. If you're exposed, like remember, you're, naturally you're exposed to about 0.6 rads. Let's mm -hmm. get say you're exposed to 30 or to 70 rads. Now that's a lot more than what you're naturally exposed to right. just in the atmosphere. And once you hit about 30 to 70 rads, you start having symptoms. And the symptoms are usually a mild headache or vague nausea, and that occurs within several hours of exposure. Of course, you recover fully over the course of time. It's considered a, a mild exposure. Mm -hmm. Now, 70 to 150 rads, now you start getting a good percentage of people getting nausea and vomiting. Uh, if you have a wound, the wound heals slower. Uh, you are increased in your susceptibility in, uh, to infected infections. Uh, but still, the likelihood is that you will recover fully over the course of time as long as you're not continually exposed. Now, once you hit 150 rads 300 to 300, that category now pretty much everybody's got nausea and vomiting, uh, fatigue, weakness in most people too. There is going to be infection. Some people may start bleeding spontaneously from various orifices. Right. Uh, and that's because the immune system has been compromised. Uh, medical care, obviously, is going to be needed by just about everyone, and, and, and especially if they were affected by burns or wounds, they're going to need major help. And occasionally, mm -hmm. at the higher levels, about 300 rads, you'll see some people die at this point. Now, once you get more than that, 300 to 500 rads, you get nausea and vomiting, fatigue and weakness and everybody, uh, diarrhea, dehydration, loss of appetite, skin starts breaking down, infections in everybody, hair loss starts occurring at this point mm -hmm. in most people, and at the high end of exposure, about 500 rads, well, about half of the people will die as a result. Over oh, 500 rads. scary stuff. Over 500 rads, everybody's bleeding spontaneously, they have fevers, stomach and intestinal ulcers, bloody diarrhea, dehydration, low blood pressure, infections, hair loss on everybody, just about everybody. And death rates approach about 100%. The effects related to exposure may occur over time, though. I want to just say this is not mm -hmm. something that occurs the next day. Uh, and symptoms are often not immediate. Hair loss, for example, starts becoming apparent at about 10 to 14 days, and deaths may occur a week after exposures from cancer, and from cancers later on, maybe years after exposure. But the victims of Hiroshima, if they weren't killed by the blast, it took them a while to die from radiation burns and radiation exposure. Now, in the early going, your goal is going to be to prevent exposures of over, let's say, 100 rads. Uh, now, a radiation dosimeter is going to be useful to gauge radiation levels and, and widely available for purchase. You have one, as a matter of fact. Yes, we do. And tell us a little bit about that. Yes, we actually have one. It is a yellow box. It's actually pretty heavy. I think it weighs about five pounds. Um, it's kind of old-fashioned. They have a lot of them today that are much, much smaller. They actually have a little something that you can plug into an iPhone now, too. Wow. Although it doesn't get good ratings, so I don't know how accurate it is. But mine is very accurate. Yours looks like a 1950s 
big old uh, well, the book, Geiger counter. The it's a Geiger counter, essentially. It is. Right? The, the instructions say that it was manufactured in 1964. Wow. Radiological survey meter. Yep. It's, exactly. It's it solid. It's metal. Solid. And, you know, it probably could survive a nuclear blast. Yes. Um, I put my vitamin, my vitamin, <laughs> my... <laughs> <laughs> my D battery in it. <laughs> your vitamin, vitamin your vitamin D battery. I put <laughs> <vitamin> <laughs> my D battery in it. I'd rather have vitamin D from the sun than what what this is measuring. Um, and I zeroed it out, and um, it seems to be working fine when I do, do a circuit check. So that's really cool. And the, and the interesting thing about this one is, it'll measure such incredibly small doses that the unit you can put it on times 100 and then if you've got a little more out there that you're measuring you could put it on times 10 and if it's getting a little stronger you can do times one so it's actually telling you how much you're getting and then um, if there's a whole lot you can do Point one. Wow, interesting. Well, so I, it'll measure really, really teeny tiny doses and really, really strong doses. I'll put this a picture of this on our blog talk so that you can see it at, while we're doing our our podcast. We have a number of pictures. Here's, that, here's a company name that probably doesn't exist anymore. The Victorin. Victorine. Victorine. Instrument Company. And, Instrument Company. And I can see that this was manufactured in 1964. 64. Well, that's, it what, looks well, that's like when the it, booklet came out. I'm not sure when this this unit was It actually. looks like it'll be good in 2064. That's how solid it oh, is. Oh, it is solid, solid. But I doubt this company still exists. But the instruction book is hilarious. It's a, Oh, it's like old timey. It looks like it's it's an antique. Is, I have it looks to like be an antique. Super careful with this. Right, but, but the box I'll, itself. And and it does when you test it, it does uh, do a circuit check and the, and is indeed working. It so. had a, it had a calibration certification uh-huh. on it from uh, February 9th, two thousand and ten, which right. is about when we bought it. All right, we'll have to figure out when. We have to redo that, and who we, he would redo that well, with. Well, I, you know, by zeroing it, it actually is measuring perfectly. All right. When cool. I do the circuit check, so it's good. All right, sounds good. Well, there are three basic ways at decreasing the total dose of radiation. One is to limit the amount of time that you're unprotected. Time is very important. Radiation is absorbed is dependent on the length of exposure, and so if you leave areas where high levels are detected. Uh, you will be a lot better off. Matter of fact, the activity of radioactive particles decreases over time as well. So after 24 hours, the levels usually drop to about a tenth of their previous value or even or even less. So spending less time in the area that the radiation is, is occurring, well, obviously that's going to be helpful. And even over time, if you wound up having to stay in the same area, radiation in, in a shelter, let's say, levels drop to a tenth of their previous value after just a day. Uh, distance, we I just mentioned, you increase the distance from the radiation. That's very important. The radiation disperses over distance, and the effects will be decreased. So if I had to make an analogy, you have less tra- chance of drowning the farther away you are from deep water, you know, right? That actually makes such visual sense. That's right. When you said that the first time, 
I'm like, yeah, I get that. If you're it worried, makes sense. Right. The more shallow you are, the less chance you're actually right. going to drown. Right. The deeper water you're in, if you're concerned, yep. if you want to decrease your chances of drowning, get to the shallow. Get to shallow water. <laughs> right. There you go. Um, so that's that. And also shield people to decrease radiation where they are. And this shielding provides a barrier that decreases exposure exponentially. It's important to know how to construct a shelter that will provide that barrier between your people and the source of radiation. Uh, a dense material gives better protection than light materials. Let's talk a little bit about different materials as barriers. The more material that you can use to separate yourself from fallout, the more likely you won't suffer ill effects. Makes sense, right? Barrier effectiveness is measured as having thickness, H-A-L-V-I-N-G, like half of, half of, uh, two halves. Anything. Two halves. Two <laughs> half halves, of anything. Two halves make a whole. Right. This is the thickness of a particular shield material that would reduce the gamma radiation, which is the most dangerous kind, by one half, therefore called the having thickness. When you multiply the having thickness, you multiply your protection. For example, the having thickness of concrete is about 2.4 inches or 6 centimeters. So therefore, if you have a barrier of 2.4 inches of concrete, that drops your radiation exposure by one half. And if you double that, you make it 4.8 inches of concrete, it drops it by one-fourth. In other words, it's dropping it by one half. One half times one half equals one-fourth. If you tripled it, made it 7.2 inches of concrete, it drops it to one-eighth. One half times one half times one half, etc. If you did it 10 times, 10 having thickness or, or two feet or 24 inches of concrete, that would drop the total radiation exposure to only one in a thousand twenty-fourths that of being out in the open. Now, here are the having thicknesses of some common materials. Concrete is sort of a middle, middling material. Steel, you, instead of 2.4 inches, you don't need one inch. Lead is even better. 0.4 inches equals 2.4 of uh, lead equals 2.4 inches of concrete. Then you have weaker versions. Soil, if it's packed, which is what would be protecting you in an underground shelter, uh, for the most part, you'd need about 3.6 inches to be able to get a half having thickness of that. Uh, water is about 7.2 inches. So I will, even water, if it's uh, thick enough or a thick enough body of water, would actually help protect you. And wood, uh, about, you'd need about 11 inches to get the same effect as 2.4 inches of concrete or even just 0.4 inches of lead plating. So you can see that, for example, lead plating, 0.4 inches, that has... Only, you only need one-sixth the thickness of lead plating as that of concrete. Now, how do you treat radiation thickness if somebody actually gets it? Well, emergency treatment of radiation thickness involves dealing with the symptoms. Uh, antibiotics can be helpful to treat infections. Uh, fluids, uh, even intravenous fluids, if you have those, that can be helpful for dehydration. Drugs like Zofran, uh, uh, Ondansetron, is the generic name, uh, would be helpful to treat nausea, fevers would be, you know, anti-fever meds like Tylenol, things like that. And severely ill patients, you know what they use? They use stem cell transplants, multiple transfusions, but you know what? In a survival setting, these are just not going to be options for the average medic. So all I can say is it underscores the importance of putting together an adequate shelter 
that people can go to if there is a risk of a meltdown or a, a bomb detonation. Now, there's protection available against some of the long-term effects of radiation, and that is potassium iodide, and that's known by the chemical symptom uh, symbol, rather, KI. That's the chemical symbol for potassium iodine. If you take it orally, it can prevent radioactive iodine from damaging the specific organ that it targets, which is the thyroid gland. And the usual adult dose of that is 130 milligrams daily for 7 to 10 days for as long, or for as long as you have significant exposure. For kids, the dosage is 65 milligrams daily, and potassium iodide is available commercially as ThyroSafe, and we have ThyroSafe actually, believe it or not, in our store at store.doomandbloom.net. We have 20 tablets of 65 milligrams, so it's already built in for the kids. You would take, uh, they would take one pill, the but an adult would take two of these pills, and you have enough. You have 20 pills, so you have enough for an adult to use it for 10 days, or for two kids to use it for 10 days. Now, taking potassium iodide about 30 minutes to 24 hours before a radiation exposure event will help prevent the eventual epidemic of thyroid cancer that results if no treatment's given. There have been about 4,000 cases or more of thyroid cancer in the area of the Chernobyl meltdown in 1986, and that occurred mostly in people that were children or adolescents at the time. So the bottom line is if you only have a limited quality quantity of potassium iodide, you treat the children, the youngsters first. Although there's a small amount of potassium iodide in, in iodized salt, so people say, oh, well, salt, my salt is iodized. Well, you know what? Not enough is present to confer any real protection by ingesting it. It takes about 250 teaspoons of household iodized salt to equal one potassium iodide tablet, so forget it. Pets may also be at risk for long-term effects from radioactive iodine, and you consider maybe a half a tablet daily for a large dog. You have a Rottweiler, I give them a half a tablet, maybe a quarter of a tablet for, dog, for cats and smaller dogs. There is an alternative, though, if you don't happen to find potassium um, iodide, even the federal government, honestly, will have little potassium iodide in reserve to give to the general population if some nuclear event occurs. When Fukushima blew, there was almost no potassium iodide to be found anywhere for purchase. So if you find yourself without any potassium iodide, you might have an alternative, and that is tincture of iodine solution, povidone iodine solution called Betadine as its brand name, what you do is you paint eight milliliters of betadine on the belly or on the forearm two to 12 hours prior to exposure. Reapply that daily. Enough should be absorbed through the skin to give protection against radioactive iodine in fallout. Now, for people that are, uh, for kids that are three years old or older, but under 150 pounds or, or 70 kilograms, you would apply about four milliliters. So, therefore, Small people, children three years old or older, but less than 150 pounds, maybe petite women, you would apply four milliliters. Two milliliters for toddlers, one milliliter for infants, and you paint on their tummy or on their forearm. The strategy should also work, by the way, on animals. And if you don't have a way to measure, remember a standard teaspoon is about five milliliters. You discontinue the daily treatment after three to seven days or when radioactive iodine levels have fallen to safer levels. Now, be aware that those who are allergic to seafood are going to be allergic to iodine, most likely, 
Adverse reaction could also occur if you take certain medications such as uh, diuretics and lithium. So it's important to note that these are possible issues. And it's also important to note that you cannot drink povidone iodine solution it, it, or betadine. It is poisonous if it's injected. Now, although many don't view a nuclear event as a likely disastrous scenario, I understand it's important to learn about all the possible issues that might impact your family in uncertain times. Do not ignore even this circumstance. You never know when a crazy dictator is going to drop a bomb on you. Speaking of crazy dictators, um, I just got a, a little tweet here that um, North Korea leader Kim Jong-un is threatening Guam. Yes. Warned of a possible attack on Guam. Well, you know what? Just goes to point. He's a nut. Proves my point, doesn't it? He's just a nut. You're absolutely right. That's all the time that we have for this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Joe Alton, MD, your host, and this is... Amy Alton, Nurse Amy. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.